0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to hear your word read, hear your word preached. I pray, Lord, we would be doers of it and not merely hearers only. I pray that you would help us to put our hearts' attention on what your emphasis is and not be distracted by lesser things. Uh, I pray for grace, Lord, and help to, uh, to preach and to preach your Son, Christ, on the cross and his resurrection. I pray, Lord, for those in this room and those listening who don't know you, that they would see why you sent your son to earth to die and rise again. I pray, Lord, for those who might be deceived and might be comfortable in this life. I pray that you would shock us again by what sin is and what it seeks to do and how we're helpless to respond to it. Father, would you give great light and understanding as your words unfolded, I pray that you'd build your church by your word. With your spirit helping us, uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever witnessed a, a musical event or a school play where things just seem to start going wrong? It's not very polished. You know, if you work with children, you're used to that. But if you pay money to go to some event, You expect that the microphone is supposed to work, that the lights are supposed to be on cue and they're supposed to, that the musician is not just lip-singing, that they're actually singing a live performance. To help you understand and, and parachute into these last few chapters of Judges, I want you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. And I want to describe a symphony orchestra to you. Close your eyes. I'll tell you when to open them in just a moment. This will just be for a minute. Imagine a wonderful symphony orchestra a metropolitan orchestra somebody has just given you a ticket you're sitting in a luxury box seat you're a couple balconies up you're watching a metropolitan symphony orchestra there's the brass section the percussion the woodwinds the string sections everybody's crisply in position the conductor's standing there with his arms raised he's ready to begin And the song gets underway. But you notice that no one's paying attention to the conductor. Now keep picturing this. No one's paying attention to the conductor. The song starts going. You notice that something sounds a little bit off key. You see in the right side of your vision, someone from the string section sneezes. And they sneeze and throw their hands up in the air. Then the guy beside him Turns and begins to start coughing incessantly. Another person over in the woodwinds actually passes gas into the microphone that was supposed to capture their musical instrument. Then the brass section shouts out to the strings. They're not keeping the proper tempo. They get up out of their seats and start shouting. Then the percussion section throws down their mallets and a fight breaks out. And in the pushing and the shoving, music stands are knocked over and papers of musical scores go flying through the air. Chairs start to get overturned, and then it gets bizarre as you're watching all this scuffle. The lights in the theater, in the concert hall, begin to flicker. And while the lights are flickering, you notice fire alarms start going off. All this leads to panic, and the audience, too, as more pushing and shoving turns into mayhem and chaos. But you're there in your box seat, comfortably with nobody pushing you around. Okay, you can open your eyes. If you can picture that, you just symbolically understood the entire book of Judges, okay? You're sitting there comfortably being a listener of God's word. You're not experiencing these things. But what was supposed to be this beautiful symphony of the the 12 tribes of Israel in the promised land, in concert, working together, taking the land and establishing it, has turned into each individual thing that could go wrong, going wrong nobody listening to the conductor, doing what's right in their own eyes, an absolute disaster happens. That's what we've been seeing all throughout this book. And I want to show you how this huge mess comes to a really ugly close. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Judges. We're going to be starting in chapter 20. We're going to finish off these last two chapters. Book of Judges, chapter 20. This is on page 219 in the Bibles under the seats in front of you. And again, Judges is showing us how God is gracious. He keeps raising up these military judges. He's kind, he's patient. This is in between the monarchy, or really the Mosaic leadership and the monarchy where there is no leader. And God's grace has been shown in 12 different Judges, but it's strange because... Rather than the book ending on chapter 16 with the life of Samson The book keeps going And what we saw last week was really how bad things have gotten in a corrupted worship and a corrupted morality Things that you don't really want to repeat again happen at the end of chapter 19 And today we get to see how Israel is going to respond to, to outrage, respond to corruption And the purpose of this book having these final few chapters is to show us It's not only that God's grace is so sweet in providing all these judges. He's wanting us to see how bad our sin is and how we're incapable of dealing with it. Um, That really sets us up for the next book, 1 Samuel, and and on into the gospel. But I'm going to read this out loud in its entirety, chapter 20 and 21. Do your best to follow along with me. Let's begin. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people, of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, The husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, You people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now, this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin, for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah, to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day twenty six thousand men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered seven hundred chosen men. Among all these were seven hundred chosen men who were left handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered four hundred thousand men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Then the people of Israel arose went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out to Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage And again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out to Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more in battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day, and set themselves in array against Gibeah, as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people, and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel, and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place for Marah Giba. And there came against Gibeah ten thousand chosen men out of all Israel, and the battle was hard. But the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned And the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them, and those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohah as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to get them, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found they set on fire. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him, who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead four hundred young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the Rock of Rimen, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women who they had saved alive, of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards, and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because... We did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If that's the first time you've heard that, maybe you're a guest today or you didn't read this before today, that sounds really confusing. A lot of different numbers of troops being killed. This thing about human trafficking or bartering with wives. And then the book just ends. What a weird, sour note to end on. I want to help you walk through these two passages and understand what God has for us here. And my confidence to go to such a bizarre place in the Scriptures and seek to mine things out of it and lay it before you and I to learn from is because Romans 15.4 encourages me. It says that everything written in former days was written for our instruction so that with hope and encouragement from the Scriptures, we can have hope, we can learn. So I want to give you three short points to this sermon that help you understand these chapters, and we'll, we'll wrap it all together and close the book, okay? Three truths we can learn from these two chapters. Number one, consider sin rightly. Consider sin rightly. Number two, confront sin rightly. Confront sin rightly. Point number three deals with compassion. Have compassion on sinners rightly. Have compassion on sinners rightly. Now, unless you've read the book of Judges from beginning to end, like we've done this year, I do not expect you to see the beauty, yes, the beauty of these final two chapters. The poetic Beauty at the literary level of the book and I say beauty because under this first idea we want to consider sin rightly The first thing we need to do before we look at any single individual verse is to step back at the larger level And consider sin rightly There's something beautiful going on you don't have to turn anywhere in your bible But if you were to turn in your bible and compare chapter one of judges with these final chapters of judges something stunning would emerge. You would see that in the opening chapters, Judah is leading a military charge in partnership with the other tribes. Judah is going out, and there's victory. But in these closing chapters, as we just read, Judah is leading a military charge, yoked with his brothers in partnership, but there's defeat. In fact, two days of defeat and thousands of lives lost. You would see at the beginning chapter of Judges, a joyful giving of marriage. Caleb giving his daughter. But in these last chapters, as we just saw, there are those who are reluctant, even a refusal to give their daughters in marriage. In the opening chapter, you would see the tribes fighting their enemies. In these closing chapters, you would see the tribes, as we read, fighting themselves. At the beginning of the book, you see what looks like a lot of covenant faithfulness and potential land enjoying rest but in these last two chapters you see what looks like an abandoned covenant faithlessness chaos and destruction in short the author has just shown us by connecting the last two chapters to the rest of the book how far the progressive deterioration of Israel has sunk down a complete reversal from how the book started we are at literally rock bottom in the book, where there's inward civil war and one tribe hiding amongst the rock of Rimmon, a bunch of caves, lest a tribe of Israel be snuffed out. And as I was looking at this chapter and praying over it and thinking about it, considering sin rightly is really the the central theme. But if you want to get really specific, there's a main idea that we can package up and take with us wherever we go in our Christian life. We've got to believe it. Here's the main idea that is like an umbrella over those three points of the sermon. Here it is. Main idea. Sinners left to themselves are utterly incapable of dealing with sin. Sinners left to themselves are utterly incapable of dealing with sin. And when they try to deal with sin, as we're going to see, they only make it worse, further disaster, and their own self-guided cleanup. So Israel here thinks they can provide a remedy of sin. They think they can get rid of those lawless, worthless men in chapter 19 who did that outrageous thing with that concubine and defiled her and abused her all night. They think they can pluck that sin out of Israel and kind of restore the nation. But as they take one step forward to try to purge some evil out of their midst, they really just take two steps backward. They make it worse. They don't know how to respond to sin. It's messy. It's flawed. I want to do my best in these next few moments to take these large chapters and just compress it down into some clear points for you and me. So those three ideas of how to consider sin, how to pursue it, confront it, and go after it, and then how to be compassionate on sinners— I want you to see how Israel got it wrong in all three of those. And then I want you, as we unfold these verses, to be thinking, in your own life, who seems to always be sinning around you? Go ahead, stop right now and think of a name. Think of a name of a person. Maybe they're in your family, maybe they're in your church. Maybe you work with them. Just go ahead and think for a moment, put a name on it this person always seems to be sinning around me. And I want you to use that name as a lens by which you can view this instruction. So under the first point, considering sin rightly, here are two truths we can take about how to consider sin rightly that come right from this passage. The first is this, under point one. We ought to view others in light of what God thinks, not what a group thinks. When we see sin around us, when we see others doing sin, we ought to view it of how God would think about it, not just what a group of people, our peers, or a larger group would think about it. Here's where I'm getting this point. In verse 1, if you put your eyes there of chapter 20, notice how the end of verse 1 ends. It says, as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. Then put your eyes on verse 8. All the people arose as one man. And then put your eyes on verse 11. Verse 11. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Can you think of when they did this in the rest of the book? Nowhere. As one commentator put it, why couldn't they get this united as one man against Israel's enemies, the Canaanites, the Philistines? Their uniting as one man is as impressive as it is sad because this is the first time in the entire book they unite together like this to go to battle against one singular thing instead of going to battle on their own. It reminds me when I was in college, I was a resident advisor in the dorms. I struggled so much to get the guys on our floor to do things together and hang out, but some were jocks, some were computer guys, and video game guys, gamers. Some just wanted to study. Some just wanted to go out and party. I could never get these guys to mesh. But you know what brought them all together before the semester was over? A power outage. It was one night in the dorms, the power went out, and all of a sudden, the TVs weren't working, the Wi-Fi was then down, and at the time the guys were poor, they needed the Wi-Fi, they didn't have their own data plan. Everybody turns off their TVs, which were turned off for them, put their phones away. They all came out of the rooms and just assembled in the hallway and kind of looked at me like, what do we do? I was like, we talk to each other, guys. This, we're getting to know each other now. And they talked to each other. They were united for that moment. But the moment the power came back on, what do you think they do? They go back to what they were doing. What drew them together in unity was not They wanted to work together and get to know each other. It was, it just, for a temporary moment, something kept them from what they wanted to do, so they wanted to deal with it together or see what to do. That's what Israel's doing here. The author three times has told us they united together as one man. But it's just to deal with a problem, not to be united together to worship God throughout the year or to go help one another. So that's the first idea. If we're going to view sin and consider it rightly, we have to understand that it's not just about getting a bunch of people together and what do they think about it, getting charged up. We have to think, what would unite me with others to deal with sin? It hopefully would be God's perspective. So if someone's sinning in your midst in your life and you think, I need to go ask some other people what they think about this, and you start to gather people around you and you get their opinions and you start to get confident, watch out that you don't do what Israel does here. They leave God behind. Secondly, besides thinking about what this group thinks instead of God thinks, another lesson we can learn from what Israel's doing here is that we want to view sin with a wide-angle lens. We don't want to get trapped into this narrow focus that they do here. Did anybody notice the lies that were told in verse 4 and 5? Really, 4, 5, and 6? Let's just zoom in on verse 5 for a moment. The leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and violated my concubine, and she's dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces. That's the Levite giving his testimony of what just happened. Israel considers all this wrongly because they don't ask this guy more questions. This guy leaves out the fact that He pushed her out there. He grabbed her, seized her, and threw her to these men who violated her and killed her. Here, he makes it sound like, who's doing the sinning? They did. They did these things to her. He's blind to his own hand in this. If we don't view others and situations with a wider lens than just a specific sin that happened, we will be tempted, just like these Israelites to not get both sides of a story, to not ask good questions, and really in an even wider lens, to think that the sin of others is somehow worse than our own sin. Remember, Israel's gathered together to purge this evil from their midst, but they didn't gather together when we saw idolatry and household gods a few chapters ago. They're being very selective here they're pointing their fingers so much so at this one sin that was committed they're totally blind to how they are sinful brothers and sisters be careful as you consider sin in your own life and those around you church family work wherever don't be so focused on that one sin somebody's doing that causes you to not take that log out of your own eye so that you can rightly see the speck in your brother or sister Considering sin rightly is the first step. The second step is, once we've considered sin rightly, we've got to do something about it. We've got to confront it. Think of it this way. Pause in your biblical thinking for a moment and go domestic. Think about who takes out the trash where you live. Roommates, an apartment, a house. You've probably never thought about this, but there's several steps to taking out trash. Step one, knowing where the trash can is. Going to that garbage can, step two, and putting things in it. Steps one and two. We don't think about it. Imagine if that's all you knew. Imagine if that person in your dwelling place, that's all they knew. It would start to get pretty bad. Smelly, stinky, overflowing. And imagine if the next step was all about, I'm just going to figure out things right in my own eyes of how to deal with this trash. And they set the trash out in your living room or wherever, and they just light it on fire and they try to burn it. Or they take the trash and they dump it out in the front where the steps are or your porch, and they think, it's all right. The rain and the wind, it's going to take care of it. It's going to eventually wash it away and blow it away. Or imagine if they thought they were being really clever, and to take the trash out, they walk over, and instead of pulling up the bag and pulling the drawstrings and taking it out to the garbage, they begin to take one piece of trash out one by one as things are are dripping and smelling through the house, to go take it outside one by one. We all know what's wrong with that picture, right? Because we know the process of what do you do with trash? Put it in the trash can. Take it out. Israel can't even consider sin rightly, and these other successive steps of how to deal with sin, they don't get right. So then when they go to confront sin after considering it, they screw it up. Let me show you how they do that. Look with me right there in verses 12 through 14. This is how Israel starts to confront sin. Verse 12, the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that's taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. That didn't sound very gentle. What they didn't do is go to Benjamin and say, hey, Benjamin, we want to give you an opportunity to hear about the heinous sins that have been committed in your tribe, your local neighborhood. Would you do something about this? They just go right past them and just say, give these guys up because we're going to kill them. They avoid that local responsibility. But worse, they don't engage in any kind of dialogue They go straight to a closed decision. So that's the first point for us in confronting sin. There's A, B, C, D, and E. Here's the letter A. If you're going to confront sin with others around you, do it with gentleness and an actual dialogue, not a closed decision that you're bringing to them to drop on them. My judgment's closed. Here, I need to come inform you of my judgment. End of discussion. That's not a good way to deal with sin. It's not a good way to confront sin. So as Israel is pursuing after sin and going after it, they actually do quote a very sound theological principle. Did you notice the end of the middle of verse 13? That we may put them to death, purge evil from Israel. The chapter Colin read earlier in the service with church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5 ended with that note of purge evil from among you. Now, we can't fault them for having the right theological card to play here. We fault them with how they're trying to play it and the double standard they're setting while they play it. How do I know there's a double standard being set? Well, there's other sins that are worthy of putting people to death and purging Israel from evil that have already been committed in the previous chapters that they're not going after. We don't have time to go there, but if you were to go look at Deuteronomy, and do a quick scan of every time it says purge evil from among you. You would find chapter 13, chapter 17, chapter 19. It, it goes on and on. And it gives all these different sins for what should be purged from among them. And they're just being very selective here, applying it to these guys. They don't want to apply it to other sins. So they're not even willing to have a dialogue about what should be purged from them. They're just running with what they see is right. It is true. God does desire to purge evil. But God's not selective in the type of evil that he wants to purge. He wants to get rid of all of it. Let's keep going. That was A. Here's B. If we're going to confront sin rightly, we need to inquire of the Lord at the beginning, middle, and end of our confrontation. Verses 18-18. 23, 26, 28, let me summarize it for you as we read, Israel goes to battle, it doesn't work out for Judah, they go weeping and crying before the Lord, even fasting, Lord, should we go to battle again? But they didn't ask the Lord in verses 12 and 14 what they should be doing, they didn't ask the Lord after that third day when they destroy the whole city. They only ask the Lord in the middle of the process when it doesn't seem to go well. They don't start talking with the Lord at the first part of the process and at the end. This is a truth for you and I, brothers and sisters. If we're ever going to confront sin around other people, we have to make sure that we don't only start talking to the Lord if it seems like it's not going well. You have to bathe that entire process in prayer and fellowship, communion with the Lord, beginning, middle, and end. Let her see. If we're going to confront sin rightly, let her see here. We have to expect confrontation to be costly and require courage and painful patience, even if the odds are in our favor. Expect confrontation to be costly, require courage and painful patience. They're ready to quit. Look with me. Look at verses. Uh, 31 and 32 of chapter chapter 20 God had already told them they're going to be victorious this day but look at how the end of verse 30 happens it says in the open country about 30 men those were men who were being killed verse 32 the people of Benjamin said they're routed before us as at the first but Israel wasn't thinking that way The people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. This is that ambush. So even while they're creating an ambush, their own people are being killed. It's painful. It's a painful patience. We have to wait for this ambush to unfold. This hurts. Some people are dying. They had to take courage. This was the third day of battle. The previous two days, verse 28 specifically, they say to the Lord, should we go out again or should we just stop? Have you ever tried to talk to another roommate or a family member or a church member about their sin, and it seems like it just doesn't go well? You try again, being really gracious and kind, and it just doesn't go well, and you wonder, should I just stop? You might find yourself doing what they did. Should we keep going or should we cease? And even when the Lord says to keep going, at the first, it still seems like it's going poorly. It's this huge test of will they listen to the Lord's voice or will they just do what's right in their own eyes. Praise God they listen to his voice here and continue the battle. But something happens when they go after the men of Benjamin. This is letter D. If we're going to confront sin rightly, we have to expect that sin is going to hide and it's going to hide out further than we can reach. Sin is going to hide and it's going to try to hide further than we can reach. Here's where this idea is coming from, right from the text. Go to verse 47 of chapter 20. It says, 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimen. Rimen, in the original language, means the word pomegranate. And you're thinking, wow, what a random note that distracts me from the sermon. But picture this, okay? Everybody knows what a pomegranate looks like, right? I googled it. This week, clicked on Google Images Pomegranate just to make sure I knew. You cut open a pomegranate, there's that huge cavernous area and then all those little pits in there. That's what the Rock of Rimmon was named after. Think of it as being named the Rock of Pomegranate. So archaeologists and commentators and others note that there's a cave really close to Benjamin here, 100 foot tall, 30 meters, 100 foot tall entrance. And then once you go into this cave, There's all these pits and holes and all these vast network, just like the inside of a pomegranate. That's how it got its name. And when they go and they fight, where does Benjamin run? They don't run into the open country. When they're ambushed, they flee into these caves. And even though they're victorious, 600 escape into these caves. This teaches us a lesson. Sin loves to hide. It teaches us that no matter how good our strategy is, no matter what God's told us to do, When we try to confront sin in other people, you're not going to get all of it. If God's using you as a vessel of grace to help somebody, you're not going to get all the sin. There's still going to be indwelling sin remaining. I wish they would have thought ahead and sent troops to block the entrance of that cave. Maybe we could talk about that later. If you know ways people are intentionally trying to hide, anticipate that as you confront sin. Letter E, the final point here, confronting sin. Resist the temptations to be heavy-handed and overbearing when you confront sin. Resist temptations to be heavy-handed and overbearing when you confront sin. Parents know this about young kids when they first sin. In a, in a way that you start to notice, wow, they're sinning. They're deliberately not doing what I asked them to do. Every parent has that feeling of, wow, I just yelled at my kid in a way I never thought I would or, Wow, I was just really harsh with them and took that that toy away in a harsh way I never thought I would do. Israel here, far worse than parenting, is overbearing and heavy-handed. I get that from verse 48. Because when these men run into the caves, they turn around and they go destroy all the other cities of Benjamin. The men, the women, the beasts, the children, the livestock, all the towns, they set it on fire. We know that because the rest of the chapter 21 mentions there's nothing left in Benjamin except for these men hiding in the caves. We have to resist the temptation to not do what Israel did. And when a plan unfolds, we finish it with something heavy-handed because we now have the upper hand. We think we're in control, so we're going to lay something heavy on another person. As we transition to point three here, how to be compassionate on sinners around us, I want to simply pause and ask you, do you believe God has good designs for dealing with sin? If you would say, yes, God has good designs, I would want to take it a step further and say, do you, brothers and sisters, know God's design for dealing and confronting sin? Individually and even in the church. I hope that you do. I want to read a few verses and and tell you about it. The first verse, I don't need to read because we heard it earlier in the service, 1 Corinthians 5, that's church discipline. If you've ever wondered, why do we practice church discipline? Why do some churches do that? Isn't that mean? That's actually the way God has designed us to deal and confront with sin. To expose sin, to warn, to protect, to present a good witness for Jesus. As a man named Jonathan Lehman wrote, he said, the sins listed in 1 Corinthians 5 are not merely adjectives, they're nouns. It's not that somebody just was greedy for a moment and they stole a candy bar in a store. It's that person is characterized by greed. They keep giving in to greed. They keep stealing. They keep taking more for themselves, even after confronted. And it's at such an unrepentant state, they can now not just be listed as an adjective of being greedy. They can be defined as being greedy. Those are the type of sins listed in 1 Corinthians 5, and we're told what to do with them as a church. To love a sinner and protect our holiness and our witness, and to please God, we remove sinners through church discipline. I thank the Lord that when we do that here, we do it in a slow and gracious, truth-grace way that takes time. But I think so often as Christians, at least I'm guilty of this, we can immediately see God's design for getting sin out of a church in a church discipline way, but we lose sight of how do I deal with the person who's sinning right next to me in my family or a roommate or in church? Do you know the scriptures of what instructs you to do in those situations? Not when it's gotten to the point of church discipline, somebody so unrepentant, so hardened that they're out of the church. How do you deal with just Everyday sinning, maybe in lesser ways. Here are some verses. Ask yourself if these match up to your thinking about sin. James five nineteen, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Galatians six one, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. The first step is you go to your brother or sister and you lay before them their sin. If they listen, you've gained your brother. 1 Corinthians 5, which we've read. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to To death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Hebrews 3.13, lastly, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is that your approach to dealing with sin around you? You pursue it in those ways? Left to ourselves, we're merely going to gossip about it or ignore it or be heavy-handed when we pursue it. Or just neglect it. In the final few minutes of this sermon, catch this. This is something you can walk out of here with. When you see sin around you, you are not supposed to ignore it. You're supposed to do what those verses just said and gently, winsomely pursue your brothers and sisters. They might be deceived and not know what they're doing because one of the effects of sin is to be hardened and to be deceived. May it be that possibly God puts you in their life to see them do this or that because you will be the means to help them turn in repentance. We want to be compassionate. That's the third point we'll close with. Be compassionate on sinners. Have compassion on sinners. Israel here is self-centered in their compassion. Chapter 21, verses 2 and 3. There's a lot of emotion. An appearance of being worshipful. But the first idea of how to have compassion on sinners is we don't want to have compassion that's man centered, human centered. It needs to be God centered. They asked the question in chapter 21, verse 2 and 3. Verse 3 Lord, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking? Answer, there's been a lot of sin going on. Their pride is starting to get in the way where they're too worried about do we have the right number of tribes? Their pride is now hurt. We're lacking one. They're not worried about what God's perspective is. If we're going to have compassion on sinners, we have to think about things from God's perspective. Another point. Secondly, we should aim to be wise in our compassion, not hasty and inadequate. They go and they kill a city and they take all the virgins from there and they find 400 virgins in the city. And they come and they tell the 600 guys in the caves, hey guys, we've got wives for you come on out, but they come up short, 600, 400, doesn't add up. Their compassion, as they say in verse six, they had compassion on Benjamin. It was just hasty. It wasn't wise. It was inadequate. We can be so tempted with brothers and sisters around us where we want to have compassion. And I want to speak to those of you for a moment who would say, yeah, I'm a pretty compassionate person. I like to seek the lost really gently and provide for them and help them be healed. I want to caution you. There's ways that you can be compassionate to other people that is just inadequate. It's too fast. You haven't thought through what you're about to do for them. And so you end up making more of a mess, as they did here, not enough wives. And then it gets worse. As a third point, we want to make sure our compassion is holy and helpful, not just pragmatic in its solutions. This third thing that they're doing wrong in their compassion is they go steal women who are dancing around at a festival, They literally steal people. Human trafficking. They're so focused on the solution that we just need to get wives for this tribe so they can repopulate and be amongst us. They don't think about the families these women were torn away from. They essentially distort justice until the men don't worry about it. So their compassion is not holy. It's not even helpful. It's just the means justify the ends. So as we close out these ideas we we realize israel can't consider sin rightly they don't know how to deal with it they can't confront it in the right way they don't they don't even show compassion in the right way it leaves us hanging with the question how do we deal with our sin answer this is why god sent christ the cross proves that jesus considered sin rightly that the father and Jesus considered it rightly because he prays to the father and says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But you know what Christ did. He prays. He says, not my will, but your will. And he goes to the cross. He's considering sin rightly. This is the only way. And in his kindness, God confronts sin rightly. The cross shows us that the father and son confronted sin in the right way because wrath was totally absorbed, not just diverted and set aside Jesus screamed out on the cross it is finished as his body's dripping with blood it is finished sin was fully confronted there God's wrath is fully fully poured out there and we know that the father and son had compassion on sinners rightly because by means of that punishment on the cross that was actually atonement Sacrificial atonement that's substitutionary because Jesus would then proclaim forgiveness of sins in His name and He would charge His apostles to do the same. So, if you're wondering how do we deal with sin rightly, we look to the cross every time as Christians, and then from there we flow out principles from the cross and how we live. If you're not a Christian today, if you feel like you're deceived that you're doing Christian things but you're not a believer. In the Lord Christ, I would urge you today, deal with your sin by going to the cross, looking at what Christ did for you there, dying in your place. That proves it's worse than you thought it was. That proves that you can't just do more good things to earn a place with God. It proves you can't just have a pastor come pray for you, and that'll make you right before God. Jesus came, and he came incarnate to deal with sin. Jesus could have came as a spirit that hovered around and taught us some things and then floated back to heaven. But he came as a human being, real flesh and blood, to be nailed to a cross. All of his blood poured out so that he could deal with sin sufficiently. And then he rose from the grave. He wiped clean God's wrath. And he offers you forgiveness in his name. If you would turn from your sin, and one of the primary ways we don't turn from our sin is we think, I will deal with sin on my own, God. Thank you. Or they think, I'm not that bad of a person. If you will turn from that thinking and trust that your only way to be made right with God is by trusting in the cross of Christ, your sin can be dealt with. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as we've looked at the book of Judges, You've been encouraged. I pray that you would tremble to try to deal with sin on your own terms. As the book closes, that last verse is a frame for the entire book. There was no king. There was no godly, high authority that they could look to. They just did what they thought was right. This is the way I think we should deal with sin. They sprinkled in a little religious lingo, some religious actions to it, but it was still just them doing their own thing. And they made it worse. Don't let your life end on a sour note. Don't ruin the situations of others by ending it on just what you thinks best. Think about what God sees, his perspective, his word. And think about how the gospel would deal with sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for making a full end of our sin. Lord, we know we're justified before you, and yet there's still indwelling sin that, that remains until we are fully perfected on the final day. Help us, Lord, as a church, to no longer neglect those who sin, but to pursue after them. Father, help us to have wisdom that if there's certain sins that are so small, we, we actually obey Proverbs 19.11 and know that it's our glory to overlook an offense, that we should bear with one another, that there's times where we don't have to pursue so harshly and intensely every little piece of sin we see. Help us, Lord, to remove the log of our own eye first and gently pursue brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to have your perspective about dealing with sin, not just our own. We thank you for showing us this and showing us the cross. In Christ's name, amen.